if you've ever listened to a podcast or read one of my books and thought, I wish I knew if that was the right thing for my body, or how could I make that work with my schedule and responsibilities, I've got something for you. A new workbook by me coming out late spring. My Perfect Movement Plan, the Move Your DNA all-day workbook, is for your specific situation because you are going to finish writing it. When you're finished, you will have a guide to a personalized movement diet that nourishes your body in the ways that you need it to. My Perfect Movement Plan is available for pre-order now, and if you pre-order from the publisher, there's a bonus, a free ticket to an upcoming online workshop, Spot the Missing Micronutrients. It's a 90-minute class where you'll learn about five often missing movement micronutrients, and these are subtle movements of the body. In this case, we'll be looking in the shoulders and the hips and the feet that are often tied to pain or injury in those areas. In this workshop, I'll also show you how to supplement with exercise vitamins. I'm putting air quotes around vitamins and how to adjust your regular movement so exercise supplementation isn't as necessary. Pre-order now at mpmpbook.com. That's my perfect movement plan, mpmpbook.com. And you'll automatically receive a bonus class ticket. But wait, there's more. Um, I'm going to be drawing three names from these pre-orders and these peeps are going to get a small group session with me to go over your perfect movement plan. So you can ask me questions and we'll brainstorm your specific situation on a Zoom call together. I cannot wait. So head over to mpmpbook.com for all the details on the book and the bonuses. Read through the frequently asked questions, order the book, get the class, and then get moving. I'm so excited to share this workbook. It's the missing puzzle piece you've been waiting for, and it's so very actionable. This is the Move Your DNA podcast, a show where movement science meets your everyday life. I'm Katie Bowman, biomechanist, author, and healthy deviant. All bodies are welcome here. Let's get moving. So here's a question I think about a lot. What is health? Meaning, what is the definition or the experience of health? On one hand, the definition can be simple, the state of being free from illness or injury. In the Western world, disease is often defined as a deviation from some biological norm. This is a typical biomedical model where the norm is supposed to hold up across the human species for the most part, meaning it's not believed to be influenced much by culture. It is influenced by culture, of course, but at the same time, diabetes is diabetes. And there are many examples of diseases or illnesses we can all agree on. In other cultures, the concept of health has more to do with relationships and fulfilling one's role, uh, like being able to get up or out and do what is required of you. The Western understanding of culture is expanding, necessarily, to include the relationship one has with their community and with nature, meaning maybe health isn't just a lack of a medical diagnosis. There are many people, maybe even you, who don't feel well, who don't feel healthy by their own understanding, and are, by all counts, free from disease and injury as measured by the system that is in charge of saying what constitutes a disease or injury. 
One of my favorite cross-cultural statements explaining health comes from a paper titled Roads to Health in Developing Countries, Understanding the Intersection of Culture and Healing. It says, The most important attribute for which all mankind aspires is good health because it enables us to live, enjoy life, go to work, go to school, participate in sports, engage in hobbies, contribute to society, fulfill dreams, and undertake different forms of activities of daily living. So yes, uh, the definition of health is tricky, but hopefully we can agree on many elements of what it looks and feels like. So on that note, today we are going to be talking about why health is becoming more and more elusive, why our society is becoming synonymous with behaviors that lead to those deviations away from our physiological or biological needs that results in disease. Now, I know many of you listeners or transcript readers out there are working on cultivating behaviors, practices, and a community to deal with this issue, especially when it comes to moving more, despite a culture that doesn't seem to support your efforts. It gets exhausting walking uphill all the time, both literally and metaphorically, doesn't it? What can we do about that? I thought I would ask Pilar Gerasimo, award-winning health journalist, founding editor of Experience Life magazine, and author of a new book, The Healthy Deviant, A Rule-Breaker's Guide to Being Healthy in an Unhealthy World, to talk to me just about that. Welcome, Pilar, to the Move Your DNA podcast. Oh, Katie, I'm so happy to be here with you. This was an interview that my husband really wanted me to do because he loved your book, The Healthy Deviant. And um, when we got your book, thank you for sending it. Um, it came with a sticker, which he proudly displays on his water bottle. And he definitely would identify as being a healthy deviant. But I wanted to start there because deviant is a term, like I'm more sensitive, I would say, around language, just writing a lot of books. And so deviant is often a term that's that feels pejorative yes, or is used in the pejorative. But I'm also, you know, spent many years in math courses and it's also simply a mathematical term. Yes. And I think that's how you're using it. So can we start by explaining like what is a healthy deviant? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think statistics are a great way of beginning because you mentioned mathematics and effectively a deviant is anyone who doesn't conform to the majority norm. And you're right, it has a negative connotation in our culture because historically we've used the term to apply to people we, who are doing things we don't approve of. <laughs> there are sexual deviants and criminal deviants and, you know, they're people that are potentially dangerous to us and dangerous to the values and manners that we hold dear. The reality, though, is that statistically speaking, we're living in a culture where the things that pass for normal are really quite frightening in their own regard. And what I'm talking about is statistics like the fact that more than 50% of the U.S. adult population has been diagnosed with at least one chronic illness, or the fact that 70% of people are taking prescription drugs on a daily or near daily basis, or that 80% of U.S. adults are not thriving mentally and emotionally. So we're already up into like, you know, 20% of people maybe are doing okay, but the numbers 
get worse. And I introduce these in charts at the front of my book, because until you see this visually on paper, it's almost impossible to comprehend the impact of this. But 97% or more, 97.3% of US adults aren't practicing even the most basic, fundamental, normy, healthy behaviors that you would need to practice to stay healthy and happy for the long haul. And these are not standards like Katie, you and I would consider to be healthy standards. These are really kind of low-level standards like observing something like a balanced diet as measured by the you know nutrition guidelines, the USD nutrition guidelines, which I'm sure neither nor you nor I are very big fans of. Uh, maintaining a moderate amount of movement, like 30 minutes a day, five days a week not smoking, maintaining a health, so-called healthy body composition, which we can argue about because they measured by BMI. But effectively, you're figuring 97.3% of people aren't practicing even those healthy behaviors, much less worrying about anything like sleep, stress management, social support, and so on. Those things that we know to be as important or more important than the things that they did consider in that statistic. Now, what that means fundamentally is that a single digit percentage of US adults is potentially healthy, happy, and on track to stay that way by virtue of their basic habits. And I suspect the numbers are drastically lower if you then throw in some considerations like social support and stress management and sleep. My goodness, if you're not sleeping, you can be doing all those things and still keel over pretty early. So I estimate that, you know, less than 1% likely of the U.S. adult population is currently reasonably healthy and on track to stay that way. And in that context, if you are Choosing to be a healthy, happy person in a society that is producing those kind of statistical results, you have to be deviating constantly from most of the norms and conventions that pass for normal. Because if you go along with the status quo, you're inevitably going to end up unhealthy, unhappy, and at danger for dying an uncomfortable and early death. Potentially more important that, and is going back to the idea that deviance is a bad thing, we're also, it means we're living surrounded by people who are mostly unhealthy and unhappy, and living in communities, living in societies where the vast majority of people are really in desperate need of more support than they're getting, and certainly more support than the 1% can provide, is really a recipe for large-scale social disaster. And I think that's some of what we've been seeing writ large in everything from violence to economic problems and issues with our healthcare system as revealed under pressure by the pandemic. So we could talk more about deviance, but in essence, the, the dictionary de definition is really just a, a, def a deviant is someone who defies norms and conventions that are approved of in their society, that are considered normal. And I'm reclaiming the term healthy deviant to apply to any person who chooses to be healthier and happier, even in the face of social resistance. And frankly, that's pretty much what we're facing right now as not a lot of support for healthy choices. Yeah, well, I mean, I often use the term counterculture. You know, movement is counterculture. So this is this is essentially saying the same the same thing. And we have a lot of listeners who have been doing so many, well, let's call them counterculture behaviors, yeah. you know, standing instead of sitting at a meeting or at an airport, you know, like or just choosing to walk somewhere instead of accepting a ride, um, yeah. choosing to wear weird looking shoes. And, <laughs> you know, like there's so many different ways that people feel, they feel this resistance. Mm -hmm. It's not visible, but it's the resistance to ideas. Um, it's a resistance to the way that you should 
you know, in air quotes, be behaving. Yes. Um, people are pushing through it, but but I think you had brought up this idea of community. It would be so much easier to make choices that were better for us yeah. if there were other people around us making those same choices. So how yeah. how do you guide people to the community that would make? I guess I mean it wouldn't make being a healthy deviant easier. It would make them less of a healthy deviant. I mean that's <laughs> what's happening, right? When you have yeah. more doing it your way, you become less deviant in nature. So what what do we do? Yeah, that's right. The norm becomes a healthy norm. And then within that smaller sanctum of support, you find yourself finding, you find yourself with social support rather than social resistance. And that is really the name of the game. Now, how to do it? Let me answer that in a slightly circuitous way, because I think the first thing is that you have to accept yourself as a healthy deviant. And part of that means accepting that you're choosing to do this in the face of resistance, and sometimes even more so finding meaning in the resistance. That's really important because if you can't sustain a sense of purpose and meaning in your decision to be different from other people, even when you're surrounded by a small, close-knit community, you're still going to feel beleaguered by the larger community looking down on you or making you feel less than or that you're weird. So I really think finding purpose in healthy deviance is the first step. It may not be that you even identify as a quote-unquote healthy deviant. Some people just never get comfortable with that word, and I'm not attached to labeling anybody anything. But recognizing that if your health and your happiness, for me, health and general mental well-being are enmeshed with, I know your philosophy is the same, you can't disconnect them, but if your mental and physical health are important to you, then choosing to live in ways that are different from other people needs to bring a kind of innate gratification. There has to be a bigger reason that you're doing this, to show up with your best gifts, to participate in changing the world for the better, for example. The whole last part of my book is called Taking It to the Streets, and it's about the value of healthy deviance as a change for a force for social change, a change for good in our shared communities. For a lot of people right now, I think we're so fed up with what we're seeing in the so-called normal world, what I call the unhealthy default reality, the reality where all of the unhealthy choices are easy and convenient, and the healthy choices are difficult and socially awkward or expensive or inaccessible. Most of us are feeling so fed up with that that I think we can find some purpose. And like, this is just plain wrong. Like there's a level of rebelliousness for me that comes up where I'm like, I don't want to be part of that system. I don't want to be part of the system where consumerism runs everything and greed runs everything. And I'm being fed all this stuff I don't want or need that's making me break down and making the people around me miserable. So I find a sense of purpose. And in finding purpose, I begin to find other people that share those values and who are willing to adjust their lives in some way, shape, or form, whether it's by using you know, their own steam to move around rather than relying on fossil fuels so much, whether that's eating food in ways that connects them to their food shed, their, their food ways, their, their cultural um, preferences, their agricultural preferences, whether they're finding purpose in family and friends and wanting to see the people around them thrive, knowing that you can't control other people, you can only create environments where people thrive naturally. All of these things sort of then create, start to create 
healthy community by attracting people who share your values. And you begin to find those people in places, whether that's a local food co-op or a, a farmer's market or a yoga class or a biking co-op or, you know, name the thing. You find, you find your people doing the things that you love and sharing enthusiasm for the things that you value. Now, I said this was a little circuitous because I want to, to go a tiny bit off this track and talk a little bit about the, the challenges of the communities that we are put into by default. This is part of the unhealthy default reality, as I call it, which is just, again, my name for our society. You begin, first of all, with a family of origin. And if you are connected still with your family, you're connected with a group of people who may or may not share your values. And that can be really hard because sometimes, you know, our parents or grandparents, the people who've experienced things we haven't, bring us into households and into environments and family systems that are inherently unhealthy. And having to choose between leaving behind your family of origin or say your childhood friends in order to be healthy yourself is can be an extremely painful, difficult thing to navigate. So I like to acknowledge that while we tend to celebrate the idea that you can, you know, quote unquote, I use this word advise with advisement that it's not a um, very, there's problems with the word, but the imperative to find your quote unquote tribe, which really kind of grew over the past decade is I think people recognized the difficulty of being healthy in an unhealthy world. That imperative is great. And it's also true that we still need to learn how to either navigate or in some cases avoid the circumstances we're put in with our own families or at our workplaces where communities and societies create norms that we find very difficult to avoid. So one thing I really like to encourage people to do is think about how to build up resilience for living in unhealthy communities, even as we begin seeking out healthier communities of support, social support and environmental support, which you've done beautifully, Katie. I know the people who tend to rotate around your community are people that are willing to defy unhealthy conventions and norms. We're getting rid of our furniture. <laughs> We're doing this for fun. But so then what do you do when you still have to go home to visit your parents or to visit your sister and, and their family? I think that to me, healthy deviance is a way of acknowledging I can't control every aspect of my community, but I can begin moving my community in, the, in healthier directions by my own influence and preferences, by asking for what I want, and by choosing, seeking out communities where people like me, like-minded, like-valued people are gathering and noticing you know, who I'm attracted to, who I'm interested in, and whether we can be healthy deviants together, which certainly makes it a whole lot easier. Do you think people are using on online communities more now to find those like-minded individuals? That's the first part. And then the second part of the question is, do you think, I mean, there's got to be an element of support that that offers, but do you think it replaces our need for the in-person tangible version of the community as well? Mm. I'm going to answer that with yes and no. Uh, yes, I do think online communities are making a very big impact and helping to connect people, helping people find each other. I have a Healthy Deviant Facebook group, for example, that has 2,500 people in it that often are giving each other shout outs and, and finding, I think, gratification and sharing resources and learning things together and you know explaining what's working or not working for them and why. Then I also have a group much smaller group of about 100 people who are in my, I call it Healthy Deviant U, which is a year-round kind of a membership experience, learning, discovery, practice, growth, sharing. 
What happens in that group, even though it's online, is that we connect in Zoom spaces that are meeting spaces where we see each other's faces and can hear each other in real time. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly in person, but what I can tell you is that the difference between just having a group, you know, a kind of nameless, faceless, faceless Facebook group where good things happen and things, I mean, that's a, is community and it does count versus the quality that happens when you can see and hear each other and maybe not touch each other, but be in a space at the same time, empathetically listening. There's an incredible uptick in the level of meaning and connection and support that comes at that level. I think going to an actual in-person community where you can quite literally, you know, smell and touch each other and like feel the presence of someone's body language and sense their energy. The laughter in the space is so different when you're in, in human form. There's no doubt in my mind that that matters. And it's important that we are able to hug and hold and touch and help each other, you know, move objects together. You know how there's nothing more gratifying than doing physical work with a bunch of people. Uh, we have projects here at our farm, for example. People don't know each other at all, but they get together and move a pile of bricks from point A to point B, and they're all best friends. By the end of that experience, they're dirty and sweaty together. And I don't think there's really any replacement for that. From an evolutionary biology perspective, we developed our DNA in close connection with a small group of other people, hunter-gatherer reality. And I just think we're hungry for that. And when we don't get it, as many of us have been missing out on over the course of the past couple of years, thanks to the pandemic, we are um, deprived in some way. We're, we're deficient of it. So I think some community is always better than no community. And I would pick an online community before I decided to try to go it alone, for sure. But I really like having a wardrobe of choices and ways to connect. I think it's extremely important. You had mentioned this first step of accepting your own deviance. And I would say that I struggle with that step. And, and maybe all of this, the podcast, the books, is because I would feel so much more comfortable if everyone else would just do the thing with me. I mean, I, I do acknowledge <laughs> that there's that element of it because I don't like making other people feel uncomfortable. Like that has mm-hmm. been with me for a very young age whether it was always there or a strategy for survival within my own family, which I could say yes. it probably was, you know, making sure that I'm never offending anyone. It has a lot to do with my personal safety where I perceive it has a lot to do with my personal safety. Yeah. What is a good first step to, and, and I would say that, you know, you, you noted this in your book and I, I felt like, right, I'm so uncomfortable stating this clearly. Like I said, where my husband slapped it on his water bottle, which he carries when he's walking barefoot into places that, oh my God. <laughs> you know, and I'm just like, oh, and I, and I don't even think it's not beneficial. It's just that I am just, I feel all of the glances and all of the, the hate mm-hmm. that can come with the difference. And, you know, and my level of hate coming towards me is so less risky than for other people who have even greater volumes of hate coming to them who would never consider healthy deviation behavior because they're already more at risk. And I'm thinking of like other marginalized groups, you know, we're like, I could never even start by doing this because I feel so vulnerable. How, what is a good first step? Mm. Well, I think that awareness that it is scary is the first step. I mean, naming it and acknowledging that there is a social risk 
and social cost to being different. And that's part of the reason that people don't do it. I talk about that in the book because I think, you know, I, I open the book with this question of how are you? And we all know that the rhetorical question, how are you, is answered with the question, the answer, fine. I'm fine. Yeah. Or great. <laughs> and we need a new question. What's the new question? I feel like since <laughs> 2020, I've refused to use that question because we need a new question, like a new opener. You know, as another one is like, what do you do? Like, that's yes. another question that just needs to go. Right. So, yeah, <laughs> so true. Well, let's, let's come back to that because I think that that's, that's a great, another social norm question. Yeah. So the, the reason I raise it though, is that if we were to answer it in a different way, which is honestly, you know, well, here's actually how I'm doing. It, it would break down the social fabric and make us weird right from the get go. So if you think about the fact that even answering the question, how are you? It, it confronts us with a certain amount of social risk. When you get into things like wearing the wrong clothes or having the wrong hair or God forbid, you know, choosing not to participate in something that everyone else is doing or eating or drinking differently, there is, a, I think, a justifiable level of angst and fear that comes from that. And if you come from an environment where you've already experienced rejection, prejudice, discrimination, hatred, being afraid because of your difference from some other reason, there's just a whole different set of layers of trauma around that that are very difficult to tell some other person, well, you should just get comfortable doing this. Right. I think it's so beginning with the awareness that there is risk and cost is important. The second thing I think is radically altering your priority set around what healthy behaviors really are necessary and meaningful. By this, I mean, we've been educated to believe that nutrition and fitness, what you eat and how you move are really the most important things. I think in this society, the most important skill sets are really about reclaiming and maintaining your basic level of autonomy, or what I call mojo, the sense that you have of personal power, of being okay in your skin, of, of not being in reaction and terrified all the time, managing your mental state, your mindset, your emotional set. Now, the practices that I suggest for that are daily practices I call the renegade rituals. There are three of them, although there's many rit rituals, but in the book, I talk about three fundamentally. I won't describe those practices right now because I want to finish my thought and we can come back to them. But the reason to do those practices are not to burn calories or to get the right levels of macronutrients. The reason to do those practices are to step into a mindset where you can be conscious and where you can, even in the face of fear or anxiety, choose to make a decision that's in your own best interest. Yeah. Now, that sounds like a like kind of maybe a vague thing. So I want to put it in more specific terms. If I begin my day by looking at my cell phone, seeing something on Instagram that makes me feel badly about myself or makes me convinced that I should have something that I don't, or I see the news and I'm aware that people are being blown to smithereens somewhere or something terrible is about to happen, or I get obsessed with who has or has not liked my most recent feed, I have lost right from the very beginning my sense of connection with myself. And so from that point, just that very first point in the morning, my day is now off to the races and I'm responding to the agenda of a world out there. From that place, I am so vulnerable to other people's judgments, my projections about other people's judgments, my giving a crap about what other people think of me, and my own confidence in being able to be okay in the face of other people's judgments. I'm so down the road 
of my fear-based body-mind that I don't think I stand a chance of, of being able to resist the social pressures that are coming my way. So a lot of my philosophy is if I am aware of the fact that doing this is going to be challenging, doing to this is not going to be the easiest sets of choices during the day, I begin with a kind of what I call preemptive repair mindset, mm. which is setting myself up to be able to persist even in the face of resistance. So when you know that about yourself, I'm a person who doesn't like to make other people uncomfortable. I'm a person that doesn't like the feeling of somebody's weird stares. Even more so a reason to surround yourself with social support, to get healthy you know, things going on from the first moment rather than being subjected to the outer influences of the world. And that brings us to like the renegade rituals, which are all simple, free, don't require special equipment, <laughs> can be done anywhere by any person, although you do need to safeguard some of your time and attention and energy around them. One more thing I'll say, and then I want to throw the floor back to you. If you can imagine that as an adult, you feel that way, that that sense of like, ugh, this is going to be weird. I don't know if I want to put this sticker on my water bottle. Like, Remember that as children, we are learning how to be acceptable people from the time that we are infants. And we pick up messages, subtle and overt, during the course of our lives that are thrown by media, by our family, by school, by books, by everything. And now 24 hours a day by social media and digital media. This is not the way that previous generations of human beings were raised. Yes, we were all raised with social mores and social manners and, play and, and expectations of our, our community that were really oriented around survival and the well-being of a whole group of people. But this level of be on the alert for other people thinking you are weird based almost entirely on social constructs that have nothing to do with survival. And in fact, those social constructs are driving us to do unhealthy things that are killing us. It's a really difficult thing to navigate unless you hold that amplified awareness. Mm -hmm. This isn't going to kill me. It might make people look at me weird. I don't have to make other people uncomfortable. They're just going to be uncomfortable. <laughs> and I need to strategically prepare myself on a daily basis for going out and if not doing battle, then doing the dance of being a healthy person mm -hmm. in an unhealthy world. Right. Well, another question, and you might not, this would just be, I guess, your opinion unless, because I don't even know if anyone knows the answer. The idea of health, this, you sort of alluded to it, be, the idea of measures to meet your physical needs, let's just say your physical and emotional, you know, mental needs, being deviant behavior yeah. from someone who comes from a, like a biological, biological, you know, lots of training in biology. Like I can't, I can't even wrap my head around it. I can't even wrap my head around. I, and I think so much of what I do is because it's so clear how many behaviors are not good for us. So many of the things that we're talking about, even the most basic thing, like you said, the, the most basic things of eating a well-balanced diet, getting enough rest, moving your body at least minutes per day yeah, without even getting into the technical, well, what about this diet? What about this movement? Like we're, we're not even addressing the things that we can all agree on all, you know, like almost ubiquitous agreement. I guess ubiquitous isn't the right word. Unanimous, almost unanimous agreement. Why, how did we get here? I mean, I know that's such a, such a big question, but do you have, 
I have a hunch that it relates to, I mean, I can't even, I don't know if I could, I, I'm going to say techne, mm-hmm. technology, but sort of advanced technologies. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if I could name it computer. Anyway, mm-hmm. what's, what, what is your, what is your beliefs around it? Where do you see it stemming from? Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question. It's such an important question. I want to first say there's, in my book, I chose to illustrate the book. I chose to make a lot of pictures to explain some of these things because I think in some ways the answers that are so obvious that they're in front of us, but we can't hold them in our mind and words, we need pictures to retain them. Mm. And I talk about the reason for it, the reason that we are so unhealthy and so unhappy and struggling to make healthy decisions and all of that. The second chapter of the book is called Seeing the Unseeable. And I use the metaphor of you know the Matrix, the film, the Matrix, where Neo kind of wakes up in this world and realizes that it's not what he thought, mm-hmm. but he's been living in it for a long time and not knowing. One of the problems is that the central factor that is responsible for our most pressing health problems is so big and so in our faces all of the time that it's just become largely invisible to us. And you exactly nailed it, Katie. It's that our most basic human needs are not being met during the course of our daily lives, what passes for normal daily life. Right Now, I'm say that again, because I'm going to explain what I think, and I think probably scientifically is fundamentally going to be, is demonstrable, the, that our most basic human needs are not being met during the course of what currently passes currently passes for normal daily life. How that happened is a 2.5 million year long story, Uh, but it's told quite shortly in the chart in my book where I basically say, you know, dawn of man, 2.5 million years to the present. And it's basically a flat line for everything, but the last 10,000 years since the agricultural revolution or around there, where we began changing every aspect of our society in accordance with some fundamental changes, primarily around domesticating plants and animals, having surpluses of things, specializing, being able to do that because we had these extra surplus things that we didn't have during the 2.5 million years in which all of our DNA was formed. So all of the DNA was formed by our ancestors in hunter-gatherer environments suddenly met up with this abrupt change of about 10,000 years ago. And I know folks who have read David Graeber's book, The Dawn of Everything, will understand that, you know, this is not like it all happened exactly at 10,000 years ago. But fundamentally, that change of surplus people moving into villages, then towns, then cities, having more people together with more resources, having a separation of haves and have-nots, all of that's what led to the Industrial Revolution, which was like steam engines and mass printing and big cities and mass production of things, including food, to then the technological revolution, which you're referencing with computers and so on, and you know push-button appliances being convenient and people having machines around them all the time and being dependent increasingly on machines in order to get time back to be able to go interface with machines. We gave up all of the manual tasks, as you write about so beautifully in your work. And that's really all of that escalation of change technologically, environmentally, and socially intersected to produce the digital revolution as we know it today of about 25 years ago. I point out in my book that we are the first generation right now in the history of humanity to be living lives anything like we are living them and to have our body minds subjected to conditions 
anything like the conditions that we're living in. That can't be said of our grandparents or our great-grandparents or their great-grandparents because there was enough similarity from generation to generation that there were people to show you how to live. And those were social norms and expectations for sure, but they functionally worked better generation to generation. Right now, the way we're living is unprecedented and it's accelerating at a level that is, I I don't know how survivable it is, we're going to find out. But I have an illustration in my book I call The Ape in the Arcade, again, to try to visually explain what it's like for us, our body minds. It's very much akin to what would happen if you would take a great, a great ape, like a gorilla, out of a jungle, its natural environment, and throw them into a video game arcade and suddenly be confronted with the discrepancy of everything that they were used to, their body mind was used to, the sounds of the forest, the grubs, other apes, (laughs) and being tossed into an arcade where there's blinging lights and flashing things and insistences, you know, to to respond to a machine's call. There's a concession stand with soda and popcorn and candy. There's a cash machine. There's a pill dispensing machine. And leave this poor ape to try to figure it out. That's really what we're being confronted with, some version of that. If you think about at a metabolic level, at a neurosynaptic level, at a digestive level, certainly psychologically, that level of chronic stress as the result of that separation, of not having our most basic needs met while being confronted with an almost endless series of distractions, incursions, small-scale traumas, death by a thousand cuts. And I think what we're seeing right now culturally, sociologically, is the result of that. A whole lot of people under chronic strain and stress without any of the supports that they need to tolerate even a basic level of angst or trouble. And what happens when you multiply that times billions of people is what you're seeing in the breakdown of our social fabric and our environment right now. Because let's not forget, I mean, the earth is our home and it's in the same kind of distress we find ourselves right now with deleterious effects on us. So that's why. There's a song by Father John Misty who's an indie singer-songwriter, and he's got a lyric, from a cave to a city to a permanent party. Not bad for a race of demented monkeys, from a cave to a city to a permanent party. Well, that's me that goes along with your uh, ape in the arcade. Yes, yes. So, you know, I have children. Mm. I have a nine and a half-year-old and an 11-year-old. And I think of myself, you know, certainly for the last 10,000 years, We've been, and techne, I think of is not just, it's anything sort of assembled, you know, mm-hmm. like spears, like, you know, like you, you've got techne as like a very broad category. But when we talk about what people are thinking about when they think about technology, it's been exponential. So it's, yeah. it's just the rate of increase is increasing, you know, it's yes. very much accelerating. And I went into this latter stage of, let's say, smart technology handheld technology and and then something different which would be constant entertainment which to me has more to do with what's on the devices not the devices themselves i think we really to move forward we need to start holding these things separately to differentiate the tool from the way that it's being used because there are tools and then there's a subcategory of tools called weapons yeah but not all tools are weapons so so we have the potential to utilize tools in a way that is not weaponized, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I think as long as we conflate them, it's going to be hard to understand them and have a, a good use yeah. set of practices. But I came 
to smart technology as a physically set. I feel like my identities were known to me. 40 year old. I, I had relationships. I had hobbies. I, I had had my brain had had a long time yeah. to sort of establish myself yeah. in a world without this. Now, I don't think my children have an equal, they're not on equal footing any longer. They will not have that chance. And I can stand, or to me, I feel like a salmon. I can swim upstream, like in very turbulent waters. And I, and I understand that I, I have the capacity, you know, I'm a very strong person, you know, my desire to make people feel comfortable. I, it's just part of who I am. So I can work with it in a way that I don't, I also don't feel the need to engage in negative behaviors to make other people happy. And I, and so I have a strength and, but I think that my strength comes from my background that I also perhaps subconsciously got just so I could, I, you know, I grew up in a family where that unhealthy behavior was so permanent. And I felt like I was deviating somewhere underneath and going, I know that this isn't like the right thing for me, but what do I know besides this, this inkling of intuition or cellular rebellion, who knows what it is. Mitochondrial rebellion. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. I was talking to the force and anyway, so what are, I know that I can't swim upstream much longer, especially when children also still, my, let's talk about my children in their stage, like also in that ape-ness of them and the part of their brain that is on track is the time to, to move to the culture. This is the time for, it's, it's not, it's not right for them to move towards me and my ideals. It's their time to move away from my ideals. And, and like, I'm, I'm just probably the reason we're talking right now is do you have insights or tools? Because it's so much easier to do when you're an adult. It is not as easy to do when you're 12. Hmm. Other than like, what makes it easier for me in my mind is to recognize like, this is, this is also a natural state of things. And I can work on the in-person and, and online communities are also not the right thing for them. Like that's not what they need at this time. Like they definitely need peer support and they need other groups of people doing the behaviors that they need on this cellular biological level. Any idea? Any, any, I mean, I know, right. But, but I think that this is going to be the next big question is yeah. What about them? What about them who are the digital natives? Yeah. Who who will are entering this space without these other facets of themselves set? How do we go about what's what is community like in a time where community has changed definitions? Mm. For, you know, like what do what do we do? I mean, I don't yeah. expect you to have the answer, but do you have a tidbit or just any? Yeah. <laughs> Well, yes. I mean, I can first, I guess I'd like to share just a little bit about my own experience growing up in an environment where weird was good. I was raised by counterculture parents in a reasonably healthy system. But the messages from them, this was in 1967, mind you, when I was born. So this was at a time of immense cultural change for different reasons, but unprecedented in its own way with hippies and, you know, race riots and going to the moon and experimental drug, sex, rock and roll, like everything was sort of up for grabs. 
And my parents' message was like, be yourself, you know, let's look at the society and acknowledge it's crazy and we are we can make our own sanity. So I grew up in an intentional community on an organic farm by people who are very intentionally choosing to reject the cultural norms of the time and to be together doing that, but rejecting consumerism, rejecting mass everything, that we didn't have a television, we barely had electricity. So I grew up in a very healthy environment. And again, this is a story I tell in quite some depth in my book, and I encourage people to go through this would be a great thing for kids to do, actually go through the process of examining where they are on their own journey. And I provide a, a tool for this, but that's called the Healthy Deviant Heroes Journey. But in my journey, what happened was that I grew up as a reasonably healthy kid. And then when I went to school and realized I was weird and that kids thought we were weird and therefore did not want to accept us or play with us or approve of us, I got busy getting normal real fast. Yeah. And for me, that was, you know, it probably eight or nine years old when I really started what I call compliance phase of my life. That phase, it is impossible, I think, without incredibly great cost to yourself and some risk to your children to try to entirely isolate them from a society. We see what happens with that too. And it's, it's <laughs> you know, it's not, it is its own problem. Mm -hmm. But what happened for me was that I went radically downhill from there for quite some time. And compliance for me led to what I called darkness which was this period of eventually feeling like I hit rock bottom. You know, I didn't like my body. I didn't like my mind. I didn't know who I was. I was depressed, anxious, getting sick, just feeling kind of hopeless about life in general. And that rock bottom period sort of hitting the, the kind of low part of that you for me was when I began questioning a lot. Now, compliance for me came along with rejecting actively everything my parents had taught me. In fact, I was angry at my parents for not explaining to me <laughs> the right way, the normal way to live, and for letting me go to school in homemade clothes and bringing my lunch in a used sandwich bag that had been recycled with. Oh, we get that. We get that all the time at our house too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Why can't I have a normal bologna sandwich on white bread in a perfectly new Ziploc bag? Right. Well, my mom had a reason for every sure. part of that, I'll tell you, but it was no good. Right. So rejecting my parents, um, my form of rebellion was getting normal, which is kind of the opposite of what happens with a lot of kids. And I think your kids are probably going to have that same thing of like, come on, mom, everybody has a mom, come on, everybody's doing this. And if I don't have a phone and a video game set and a virtual reality goggle set, no one's going to like me and I'm not going to be able to talk to the other kids. And they have a point. Sure. I mean, there is some part of it, which is like, you're not going to be able to completely protect them. Uh, from all of that, or would you even want to? Because there are some, you know, I think this generation of kids is going to, like every other generation, find some very creative ways of putting their technological skills and sensibilities to use to, to help solve this current set of problems. Right. So I don't think it's, like you said, the technology isn't necessarily the root evil. No. It's just an evolution of this thing. Right. So what to do about it? I will say, here's what I would say based on my experience of coming back from compliance, dissent, darkness into divergence and ultimately into my healthy deviance. Know that this is a predictable path. Understand that your children, whatever whatever reason, are probably going to at some point hit the version of bottom that for them is bottom. And they will, they will be the only ones who will know or be able to be willing to make the changes that get them out of that. But, or and, <laughs> the things that you have presented them with and that they have experienced in their body minds as the result of living healthy rhythms and patterns having had the experience at some point in their early childhood of going to bed early and, you know, waking up with the sunrise or of moving their bodies and having the gratification of that, of learning basic skills of how to make food and have fun without all of that stuff. 
even if it's at little tiny intervals, it does implant something that I think is an advantage that they can then return to. Because when I did hit bottom and I decided to begin changing my life and I began, magic word, experimenting, I began discovering that a lot of what my parents had taught me was right and did work. And I had rejected it because I needed to reject it. But I now knew how to re-embrace it much more easily than a lot of my friends who had never been exposed to that. And so I think while we can't control every minute of every day of every kid's life, I think teaching kids about how their body minds work and the fact that they come from DNA that was formed over 2.5 million years is useful. I think letting them experiment with the arcade and recognizing that it's a predictable set of results that come from living in it, namely feeling depressed and anxious, having fl weird fluctuations in their appetite or weight, having hormonal dysregulation, having strange nervous tics or habits like picking at themselves, that looking around in our society and being able to point out these are the natural results of living inside the arcade. And it doesn't mean you can't ever be in the arcade, but it means you do need to find ways of either being resilient within it or escaping it at the intervals that are necessary for you to feel good about yourself and good in your own body mind. And that to me is the art form I call healthy deviance and that you, you know, explore in your world, Katie. It's like, how can we find ways in the context of our current unhealthy world to get slices of what we need to get our basic needs met? so that we can survive long enough to figure out the solutions yeah. for this next generation and help them create enough baseline health and resilience to find their own way. Well, thank you for that. And fun fact, I actually took my kids to the arcade yesterday just for that reason. You know, they want oh, the actual arcade. The actual arcade, I, you know, because, you know, and I was thinking, you know, like I used to love, I played Pac-Man, you know, Miss oh. Pac-Man, actually. Sorry. Me too. Yeah, I played Miss Pac-Man, you know, for hours a week. But my version of playing Miss Pac-Man included me saving up my quarters and then walking to the store. a mile down to the arcade, no, actually to the laundromat. And then, and then with meeting my friends there, who we'd all stand yep. around and take turns playing the rest of the time, you know, we're chatting and then we leave. And, and so it, it, it's just a, yes. there's always a more nutrient dense version I would say, you know, and like that's that's been my solution is what are the things we want? We want um, uh, Takis in our lunch. Great. You know, like get your bag of Takis and throw them in and they can nestle in amongst all the other vegetables that you actually love already. Pack it with your artichoke. You know what I mean? So I, I do. Yeah. I am a fan of uh, that autonomy. Yeah, I think that diet and exercise are great, but I think that autonomy is tops, you know? And so I, I am very thankful that you came on to talk with me and I hope that everyone goes and gets a copy of Healthy Deviant in paperback. Is it an audiobook? Do you have an audiobook version? I do. I actually, I narrated the audiobook myself. And yeah, you, it's fun. You can find a free sample of the, the first chapter in the introduction of the book, the print book available at my website which is healthydeviant.com. And there's also a link to the audiobook, which has a sample of the introduction. And the introduction, you know, really gets into a lot of what we've been talking about and the kind of fundamental principles of the book. And I do think that, you know, I encourage anybody who's interested in healthy deviance or the idea of that it is a skill set to be a healthy person in an unhealthy world requires skills and strategies 
um, will enjoy that. I'll say too, I do have um, a fun quiz called Are You a Healthy Deviant quiz that folks can take for free uh, that you, I think I've given you a link to, but it's also available right from that same healthydeviant.com site. Just takes a couple minutes, but it does give you a better idea of what Healthy Deviance is about and where you fall currently on the Healthy Deviant spectrum. I suspect a lot of your listeners are hardcore Healthy Deviants. Yes, as am I. Like, as am I, and I will acknowledge, yo, yes, I am a Healthy Deviant. I'm a confused Healthy Deviant who just still cannot understand how we got here. I, I, I yeah the steps, but yeah, but um, I'm going to think about that and we continue yeah. about that. Well, and if I may say one more thing relative to the question you asked about how to raise children, I mean, we're all raising ourselves. We're like children yeah. in this society right now, because I said, you know, there's nobody to teach us. We're just figuring it out as we go. I do think that having patience with ourselves and accepting something other than perfection is really important. It's like, we are in a survival mode and it's important to be gentle with ourselves and approving of our efforts and experiments along the way. It's going to take a, a whole crew of us experimenting and sharing the best results of those experiments. So thank you for doing what you do too, Katie. I share your work with my Healthy Deviant community. I would love to have you on in my group. And I know folks will have a lot of questions for you about how to, how to move their DNA and other parts of themselves <laughs> through this world of ours. And it's always just such a privilege and pleasure to talk to you. Anytime, anytime. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. You bet. Many thanks to Pilar for speaking with me today and to all of you for listening. Um, I asked her afterward to share her definition of health with me, and she said that health to her is a feeling of integrity and agreement within your body-mind that you have adequate energy, vitality, and resilience for your chosen life. You can find links to The Healthy Deviant and the Healthy Deviant quiz in the show notes for this episode. And also check out her podcast, The Living Experiment. Thanks for listening, friends. Uh, it is my hope that this show and really everything that I put out is landing at the intersection of many definitions of health. That yes, you get the movement your body needs, but that you're able to get it in a way that positively impacts your relationships with the other human and non-human entities that make up your life. I do hope quite deeply for better well-being for everybody, including this body that we all sit upon together. Hey there, my name is Carla from Fredericksburg, Texas. This has been Move Your DNA with Katie Bowman, a podcast about movement. Hopefully you find the general information in this podcast informative and helpful, but it is not intended to replace medical advice and should not be used as such. Our theme music was performed by Dan McCormick. This podcast is produced by Brock Armstrong, and the transcripts are done by Annette Yen. Find out more about Katie, her books, and her movement programs at nutritiousmovement.com.